all opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the official views of the College Democrats of NYU, the Democratic Party, or any organization. All voices remain vital to our democracy. This podcast was recorded at 8.53 p.m. on Thursday, March 22, 2018. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Wait, Ryan, what time did you say it is? It's time for Fighting Words. Welcome to Fighting Words, the official podcast of the NYU College Democrats. I'm your host, Raven Quesenberry. And I'm your other host, Ryan Trembauer. Hello to all our friends, family, and assorted listeners. Welcome to the very first episode of Fighting Words. Ryan and I are two students at New York University trying to make sense of politics in 2018. This is a podcast for us to help you do the same. In the coming episodes, we'll be speaking with some of the coolest professors, student leaders, and local activists to learn how we can all navigate the age of Trump. We'll also be breaking down some of the week's biggest stories. Our hope is that our fighting words can be a spark for change on every campus. So Raven, what's been in your feed this past week? Well, I've been really following the NYCHA scandal. Have you heard about that? I haven't. Could you tell me a little bit more about it? So, New York City Housing Authority, otherwise known locally as NYCHA, is the city agency responsible for public housing within New York City. And essentially, it's fallen under recent criticism over the past few years for failing to protect its nearly 400,000 residents. Especially with our record-breaking cold spells in January, this has proved to be a very large problem. And a group of residents appointed by the larger group of residents, called the Citywide Council of Presidents, is actually bringing this to the New York State Supreme Court. What are they hoping to get at the courts? Well, essentially, they're hoping that NYCHA will provide rent rebatements, uh, payback on their rent for those months where they had to go without heat or hot water during some of the worst winters we've had in up to 30 years. So who exactly is handling the case on behalf of the residents? Well, right now, it's New York City public advocate Letitia James. So she's a lawyer who handles a lot of cases on the New York City public's behalf. And she actually was in court with this case uh, just earlier this week and is quoted on Tuesday saying that she recommends NYCHA comply with residents' demands for the rent rebates so that this doesn't turn into an even bigger legal battle than it has to be. Public housing is a huge issue in New York City. Has the mayor um, spoken out on it? He has. So actually, this has become a really big political issue in the last couple of weeks. Um, And actually, a clashing of heads between Mayor de Blasio and New York Governor Cuomo. So de Blasio has been trying to get money from the state to fund NYCHA, which is a city agency but receives large amounts of funding um, in you know housing restorations and repairs from the state. There's nearly $250 million in um, housing repairs that are currently being held by the state. Um, and it's become this big kind of political fight. So Cuomo was actually in New York City last week to do some tours of NYCHA buildings and speak on the issue. And honestly, Mayor de Blasio was not having it. He spoke on Sirius XM sway in the morning, actually yesterday morning, and was quoting calling Governor Cuomo a hypocrite and a political opportunist. Wow. This isn't the first time that de Blasio and Cuomo have gotten into kind of a heated debate in public through the media. Um, de Blasio and Cuomo have disagreed on traffic congestion policies here in the city, the MTA, and funding to help that problem. Um, they fought over school and who has the right to oversee the schools. Um, This isn't the first time, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last that they're fighting. Definitely. I mean, you could call this fighting words. (laughs) (laughs)
but so, I mean, you're a metropolitan studies student. Yes. What do you think will come out of all this? It's difficult to say. NYCHA, like you said, is very complex, and it is very difficult to get any type of um, progress with um, public housing, let alone the issue of affordable housing um, for those that lie outside of NYCHA. Um, it's very complicated to get um, policies enacted. For example, um, there's debate over how to get sidewalks in front of um, senior centers that belong to NYCHA, how to get them fixed. There's debate over um, pet policies and whether certain residents should um, be able to bring any type of pet into um, their buildings. And all of this actually has to be either litigated through the courts, through people bringing cases, or they have to, uh, it has to be legislated through the city council and through in appropri- with appropriate um, connections to Albany. So it's very complex. Um, I don't know how it's going to work out. Do you think the residents are going to get the rebates, or do you think it's going to have to go all the way through the courts, all the way through the legal system? You know, I'm hoping on behalf of those 400,000 residents that they do get their rebates. But it is complex, and NYCHA is pushing back. You know, NYCHA representatives have said every dollar that we pay back to residents for that uh, heat and hot water is a dollar that's not going to our staff, that's not going to repairs. And that's a messy issue. It certainly is. And just this greater issue of affordable housing and um, its relationship to public housing, we see this again and again come up in every elected official's public remarks, and we see it again and again with every electoral cycle. For example, in 2013, when Bill de Blasio was running for his first term, his campaign motto centered around two cities, the tale of two cities, and trying to end that divide. And one of the greatest things that he talked about in that policy program was bringing a more efficiency and more access and more equitable access to NYCHA and affordable housing. And we saw that same motif come in his 2017 re-election campaign with his One New York um, theme. So it's certainly a thorny issue, and if you had to ask me, I do not think it's going away anytime soon. Ugh. So then what else have you been really interested in this week? I have really been interested in the candidacy of Cynthia Nixon. She's running for New York State's governor. I know. So crazy. Very, very crazy. Um, This is the first time that she's ever running for public office um, at any level. Um, Everybody knows her as Miranda from Sex and the City. Naturally. Of course. Um, But she's also been a longtime activist and especially has picked up her um, activist roots um, once again after you-know-who got elected in November of 2016. Of course, of course, as as all of us (laughs) have become much more politically active. But the interesting thing is Nixon is running a campaign against a two-time incumbent running for his third term, um, who's also being touted as a potential 2020 presidential candidate, Andrew Cuomo. He's very entrenched in the New York political scene. He is very connected to unions um, and the Democratic stronghold base there. Um, So Cynthia has a lot of an uphill battle to start climbing. Yeah, I mean, that's a big hurdle for a first-time candidate. Do you think she has a chance? That's what everybody's talking about. That's a million-dollar question. She certainly has surrounded herself with people who know politics and know New York City and know New York State. She's surrounded herself with former de Blasio aides that helped on his original 2013 campaign. 
um, which Nixon was actually a prominent surrogate for de Blasio. So she's bringing in people in from that she helped out now on her side of things. Um, She also recruited, of all people, Zephyr Teachout. Um, as her treasurer. And Zephyr Teachout is interesting because she actually ran against Cuomo last time. And she got huge swaths of support um, in the upstate. Um, She didn't do very well in New York City, which was a Democratic stronghold for um, Cuomo, which was enough to put him over in the Democratic primary. So it's interesting that she's working with former de Blasio aides, as well as former candidates that have actually run against um, Cuomo. So it's it's an interesting blend. Yeah, she's building quite the team. (laughs) Certainly. Um, What are your thoughts? Well, I guess I don't know much about her actual campaign. I mean, what is she saying are going to be her big ticket issues? So it's super interesting because she actually launched her cam- campaign out in Brooklyn. Um, she is talking about issues such as um, the MTA. She's talking about public housing. She's talking about um, kind of the grievances of um, the Cuomo administration and how he isn't helping all New Yorkers equitably. Um, he's been wrapped up in controversy uh, over um, political scandal um, with some people in his administration. He's been fighting people over um, funding for schools, um, for public housing, like you mentioned in NYCHA, a lot of scandal um, around it. Um, and so she's trying to be the people's leader, um, and she's definitely running an insurgent candidacy. Oh, definitely. And it looks like, I mean, she really is fighting Cuomo as Cuomo. I mean, I, I watched her campaign video, and, you know, so many shots. She's riding on the MTA, she's riding on the subway, like, really trying to drive that home that she's a New Yorker who lives in New York and has had to put up with Cuomo's MTA for so many years at this point. Um, and I think that's a hashtag, Cuomo's MTA. Which was trending on Monday, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah at the same time as Cynthia Nixon. Exactly. Um, so it's a big deal. Since the election of President Donald Trump back in November of 2016, We've seen a lot of celebrities weighing the possibility of also jumping into politics. Oprah 2020. Yeah, or Kid Rock. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think to a lot of NYU students that I've talked to about this issue this week, it's a little concerning. And the question is, you know, are we comfortable endorsing someone, even if they are this outspoken liberal like Cynthia Nixon, if they have no political background? Certainly. I think... It's complicated because, and one, she has a right to run, just like any other citizen. Um, But more importantly, it is what type of level of experience do you need to run for what level of office? Should she be running for governor or should she be running for an assembly seat, a city council seat when that comes up again? Um, What level of office um, is best for someone with no political experience? And how much can a celebrity effect really help her? Um, Because she is known for Sex in the City and she's known as an actress. She's not known as someone who can wheel and deal in the political realm. Not trying to write her off. I'm super excited to see how she addresses these issues and how her campaign develops. But it's certainly interesting to see unfold. The question becomes, because we know people do turn out for familiar names. I mean, that's, you know, American Public Opinion 101. I think the question becomes, not will people vote for a celebrity, but should they? Especially with a governorship, because oftentimes a gubernatorial position is a launch pad to the presidency. Mm-hmm. I think it does raise a little more eyebrows than if it was, yeah, like an assembly member or something. And I think it, it's not necessarily 
celebrities. I think it's people without any political experience at all. Mm, If mm -hmm. Donald Trump has taught us anything and that this crazy world since his election, it's that people are stepping up for the first time to run. Whether it's Cynthia Nixon, the celebrity, or whether it's Sally Sue down the road who's saying, I want to run for the first time. Um, And they're selective in um, what they're running for, whether it's county commissioner, whether it's House of Delegates in Virginia, or whether it's governor of the state of New York. Um, And so it's complicated to address all of these issues because at the same time you see this surge of candidates getting into every type of race and isn't inevitable then that you're going to see a couple celebrities throw their, their hat in the ring as well. But because we're Democrats, why don't we talk about the PA special election? Ooh, yeah, let's get really political. <laughs> yeah, so last Tuesday, March 13th, um, there was a special election in the 18th district out in Pennsylvania for Congress, for a House member. Um, it was created because of a vacancy, because the last guy, um, Republican Tim Murphy, he had to resign um, because there were allegations of an extramarital affair, and he may have told his mistress allegedly have an abortion, even though he's been a long-term advocate of um, the pro-life side of things. That's right. I heard about that. Icky. um, Thank goodness he's out of office. And now we got a Democrat. Yay! um, Which was amazing. Nobody thought it would be possible, but here it is. In the age of Trump, we got a Democrat elected to a very partisan district. And it went 20 points for Trump in 2016, and not only did it overcome that, it overcame it just a little to give the Democrat the victory. Very close. Every vote counted. It came within hundreds of votes. Um, It was a nail-biter. Wow, and I mean, no pollsters saw this coming, did they? They thought it was going to be close. They thought um, the Republican candidate was going to take the night. They thought it was going to be a long night, but they thought the Republican was going to take it, so that... um, It was a big shock, not only to us as college Democrats, (laughs) but to America as a whole. Um, But overall, um, it kind of fits into this giant trend that we're seeing. This whole Democratic wave, this Democratic... um, I saw some articles that now it's going to be a tsunami, is what some people are calling it. Uh, I don't know if I believe that just yet. Um, But it fits into this giant trend of huge overperformances for Democrats running at the federal level. Um, And that's a good sign for Democrats if we want to pick up enough seats, not only to take up the House, but even to potentially put the Senate into play um, for Democratic control. And how many uh, seats is that that we need? We need 22 seats in the House. Um, The Senate's a little bit more complicated because there are a lot of, um, it's a bad map for Democrats right now. So one of the most interesting things about the Democratic um, victor in the race, Connor Lamb, um, is that he actually took some socially conservative um, positions. Um, For example, he publicly supports um, the woman's right to choose um, and abortion rights. However, he personally doesn't support abortion. Um, Another thing was that he really stressed um, blue-collar workers, um, the so-called white voters that went for Trump but went to Obama in 2012, Um, And he tried to make himself a centrist. He disavowed um, Nancy Pelosi. He said, I'm not going to be a hack of Pelosi. I may not even vote for her for leadership. Wow. Um, So my question is, what does it take for Democrats to win in these rural districts? I mean, I think it makes sense that the, the candidate should match the district. If this is a district that can switch between uh, red and blue, but you know, has more socially centrist ideals, the representative should, I think, match those ideals. I think that's how a democracy should work. Um, 
That being said, obviously, it makes it a little iffy at the federal level when, we, when it's time to pass democratic legislation. However, I do think, you know, philosophically, a representative should match their uh, district. I totally agree. I think um, Connor Lamb was the Democrat that we needed in that area to win. Um, it does address kind of this intra-party debate that's happening of whether you need to be a Democrat that checks every single box at the national level, or can you pick and choose, though? Um, and that debate is not won by either side yet. It's still going on. Um, and I think 2018 is going to be kind of the defining moment where the party will finally be able to say, okay, candidates that were able to localize their message and truly represent their constituents were able to win? Or was it candidates that stuck with the national identity of the national party? Um, where were they able to win? Were they able to win? We'll be able to have better um, say on which side of that debate is going to win because we'll have more data. We'll have 435 um, data points in the House, and we'll have a third of the Senate. And we'll be able to see which messages worked in which areas, which plan helps Democrats plan better for 2020 and every election thereafter. I think it's incredibly exciting how much we're about to learn in 2018. Exactly. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Fighting Words, brought to you by NYU College Democrats. Make sure to tune into our episode next week on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And remember, stay engaged, question everything. Thank you.